0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Mark. If I haven't met you, it's great to see you here. Uh, I was down at the uh, 9 a.m. service and, uh, and then came in and then met all the families who were at the, so some of the families are doing the young families group on the way out. And they we're chatting out there and so, I'm just running a bit late. Uh, but it's great to be here and let me just. Beautiful. How's that? So um, we're in this journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' teaching about how we are to live life in God's kingdom. And it's amazing teaching. I made the point last week that if, that often we approach Jesus as just a religious guy. You go to him for advice on how we should connect with God or pray But we don't think of him as like the most brilliant and insightful human being who ever lived, who actually understands the human condition better than anyone else. So if we listen to him as an expert on life, things are going to go really well for us. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. This is Jesus' teaching... To a ragtag, motley bunch of people. Um, if you read back to the earlier chapter, earlier verses in this chapter, the, the people gathered around him are the outcasts, the demon-possessed, the sick, the poor, the lame, uh, the, um, the sex workers, the tax collectors—all those people who who would never have made it in polite religious society. And now Jesus has said to them, Listen, guys, girls, uh, because of what I've done, the kingdom of heaven, connection with God is thrown open for you. And of course, it's an am- that's amazingly good news if your whole life you've never been quite good enough to connect with God according to the rules of the day. You've always been an outcast. Now you're in. And now some of them were saying to themselves, well, we're in because of Jesus. Now we can just do whatever we like. All this morality and law doesn't apply to us. And Jesus goes, no, hang on. It, let's, let's, let's help you. Now you're in. Understand the shape of uh, the life that I want you to live and the shape of a life lived in the kingdom of God. So uh, today we're going to look at uh, lust and adultery and divorce. And um, just a light topic for a Sunday morning. I feel a bit like John Stott, who is a Christian pastor and writer, a great man, wrote a commentary on this bit of the Bible. And when it came to talking about divorce, he said, I really didn't want to write this. He says, because as a pastor, I just know the immense pain that so many people have experienced in their relationships and I don't want to in any way inadvertently add to that. And I want to say that as well, like right up the front, um, even talking about divorce and marriage breakdown can be immensely painful. And I, and I understand that, and I'm so hesitant to speak about it. And I'm also aware that, that from the front in this way, there's only so much I can say. And, and every person's situation is different, so... Um, you know, in the two hours I have available to unpack this, I'm not going to be able to say everything. I'm joking. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the material, and then we, like we did last week, we'll, we'll pause at the end, I'll pray, and then if, if we are so inclined, we'll have a time of questions, and we can just unpack this a bit together and think a bit together about this. So um, let's get into it. Jesus makes this point. That what matters in life in the kingdom of God is not polishing our uh, our external appearance, but having our hearts changed. What matters is not what we look like on the outside, but how we live from the inside. And if you recall last week, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said, well, what really matters is that we don't murder people. And you go, yep, that's right. Let's not murder people. But what did Jesus say? He said, well, no, murder is just the behavior. Murder is the symptom. What God wants to do in our hearts is change us so we are free of anger and free of contempt. And if we are free of anger and free of contempt then what will flow out of our hearts and into our behavior is reconciliation and peace and love. So he says, don't just think, oh, I haven't murdered someone, so I'm good. He says, no, no, no. Where's your heart? Are you, are you harboring anger fueled by self-righteousness and a wounded ego that leads to contempt? Because that's, that's murder in your heart that give it time will destroy the relationships all around you. So, what he does with our sexuality and our marriages is he adopts the same tactic, right? So, a bunch of Pharisees and teachers of the law said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Woohoo! I've not committed adultery. I'm living a great life sexually then. And Jesus goes, Ah, listen, listen, listen. No, 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 no. Just because you haven't committed the physical act of adultery, doesn't mean that you're living well in the kingdom of God, flourishing as a human being in the area of your sexuality. In fact, far from it. One can be outwardly compliant, but inwardly a seething mess of toxic dysfunction that is just waiting for an opportunity to express itself. And that's what Jesus addresses. So he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Yep, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, By the way, this is, I think if Jesus were talking today, he would probably include women in this as well. If any woman or man looks at another person with lust in their heart, they've already committed adultery. What's he saying? Well, what he's not saying is this. Uh, You're sitting uh, on Darling Street having a cup of coffee and some really attractive person walks past and you go, whew, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Who does that? I don't know. Well, okay, so you might think you see a really attractive person walk past, go, whew, I would really like to have sex with that person. You might think that. You might think, you know, that's, that's temptation. And that the thought itself is not a problem. Like that's, um, uh, that's, that's um, just part of life. Jesus was tempted. My hunch is if Jesus was sitting on Darling Street, he would have those same thoughts. He'd look at an attractive person walking by in their active wear, on their way to have coffee, and he might have that thought. But what he wouldn't do is what Jesus is talking about here which is to look at a person for the purpose of lusting after them. So if you see the little highlighted bit underneath that in the Greek, in the original language, there's a purpose clause that is most helpfully translated. So what you don't have to do is you look at someone for the purpose of engaging in fantasizing and desiring them so that your heart is given over to savoring the, 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 and indulging in the fantasy so that if you could, you would. If you could, you would. It's a savoring of it. Uh, William Carey, Baptist missionary, said... Uh, to his male missionaries going out into the mission field, he said, if you, if you don't look at a woman once, you're not a man, but if you look at a woman twice, you're not a missionary. Martin Luther said, great German reformer, he said, you can't stop a bird flying over your head, but you can stop it building a nest in your hair. Y- y- you can't, God has wired us up as beautiful, amazing sexual beings. It's just the way, it's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. But what are you going to harbor in your heart, Jesus says? You're going to harbor lust, fantasized desire for the other person in your heart. As with anger and contempt, so with sex, one can be out of step with the kingdom of of God long before one actually commits the physical act of adultery. You know that. I know that. Our experience tells us that. Adultery in the heart is looking upon a person for the purpose of lusting for them, using their visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. When the heart is ready, the action will occur as the occasion uh, offers. See, sexual desire has a vital function in life. And as long as it performs that function, it's a good and proper thing. Thinking of sex with another is not adultery in the heart. Being tempted is not, sexually is not wrong, though one should not, uh, though one should not be willfully entered. It's not a, you shouldn't willfully... Choose to put yourself in a place of temptation But in and of itself, it's not wrong Here's the thing about this A heart given over to lust Makes its presence known It is always acted out to some degree And simply cannot be kept a private reality What do I mean by that? You can't What's inside us leaks out If you've got If, if you are a person who in your heart of hearts is harboring uh, sexual fantasies for another person and dwelling on them and savoring them, that is going to affect how you look at them, isn't it? And they're going to know that. And others around you are going to know that. They might not be able to consciously articulate it, but they're going to know. There's a whole bunch of studies being done on this. Uh, articles written on the gaze or the look. And you know it. You know it if you've been in a work situation and there's somebody in your work group who is given over to, to lust in their hearts. And they may never actually cross the boundary into sexual harassment, but you just go, oh, the way they look at me, the way they look at others, you just know destructive of relationships long before it's acted out though the acting out will come if opportunity provides and will be immensely destructive it affects all of our relationships and Jesus says that uh, that is a massive, massive problem now um uh, What do we do to address this? Uh, There have been sects, religious groups over the years who've made a rule based on this and said, well, the answer to this problem then is never to look at a woman, right? Is that the answer? There's another answer, which is a form of it. I never look at a woman because I make sure she's covered up from head to toe that's another religious response to this, isn't it? What, what, what are the problems with those two responses to really one f- form of the same response? Well, what are the, what, what's wrong with that response to a way of stewarding our sexuality and making healthy relationships between women and men work? Well, you apply a law that makes it all the woman's problem, right? Uh, you know, you, you can, if, even if you see a woman covered from head to toe, that doesn't mean if your heart is, is given over to lust in the way that Jesus talks about, that even when someone is covered from head to toe, if your heart isn't addressed, you can still be a seething, dysfunctional, toxic mess of lust. And then all the law does in that instance is, is ritualize the blaming of the woman and say, it's the woman's fault. If I rape you, it's your fault because you were so attractive that I couldn't help myself. It's been a common practice in human culture. And against that, Jesus says, no, no, men and women take responsibility for the state of your hearts, recognize that it is in your heart that that everything is set on course. This is what uh, Job says in Job chapter 31. He's mounting his defense as a godly man against God, and he says this, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. I remember when I was a young man, uh, you know, uh, just yesterday, um, uh, back back in the day when I was at university, I was probably 19 years old, hearing the speaker, who was very old at the time, he must have been at least 50, I um, thought he was very old. Um, and he talked about this verse, and he said, he said to us, Men, what you don't want to be is a man with hungry eyes. And I think he was riffing off an 80s song. Um, <laughs> but, but that's, and we know those people, don't we? And he said, Men, do not be that. And I remember as a young man going, Oh, Lord, I just thought that is, I never want to be that kind of a man. I said, Lord, spare me from that, that I'm one of those guys who's just, you know, you're just always mentally undressing the people around you. And I said, I don't want to be that, Lord. And then I thought to myself, Phew, it's awesome because I'm 19. I'm sure by the time I'm really old and I turn 30, I won't have, this, this won't be a problem for me. <laughs> And then the guy kept going, and, and he said, "Well, and as a middle-aged man now, this is still a problem." And then he told the story of this eighty-year-old missionary man, for whom, for, for whom this was still a battle. He said, "Every day it's a battle to to look at women and men from a pure heart with a pure heart." I said, "Oh man, it's a lifetime's battle." Sure, sure. It's for all of us. Now the battle, uh, uh, and it's it comes out of our hearts. Job goes on; he says this. Um, if I've walked with falsehood or my foot is hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honor scales, and he will know that I'm blameless. If my f- steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes. So that's what happens. How, we, we make a covenant. What are we going to look at? What are we going to indulge in? And then what's going to settle and take root in our hearts and then that is going to lead out into our actions? Um oh, I don't know what Jesus would do today um, with the level of pornification and objectification of women and men online. I mean, it's a mess out there, right? Oh, my goodness. It's a mess. The average age of first exposure to hardcore pornography is 11. Right? Uh, and and what, it, what makes... There's a whole lot of reasons why pornography is awful. Um, the most obvious is that it's intrinsically exploitative of the person you are looking at. Like you cannot look at a pixelate, at pixels of another human being on a screen and regard them with love and regard them with concern and care for their flourishing and well-being as a human being. They're objects to be consumed by your indulged, fantasized lust. That's what it is. And it, and it erodes all kinds of relationships, diminishes... And, and by the way, we're going we're gonna to finish with this, but I'll just give you a heads up. That's why Jesus talks about this right after dealing with anger and contempt. Because you can't actually look at a woman being sexually assaulted in the guise of pornography without a feeling of contempt and disgust towards her, and without it fueling anger. Which is why, I'm not sure if... I hope you don't know this, but when you read the statistics... There is this massive shift in online porn towards ever-increasing degrees of violence and degradation of women. There's no such thing as innocent porn anymore, vanilla porn. It almost. It is just, it's a cesspool of violence and degradation. Now, uh, let me just say, men, uh, don't feel it's just about you. I read an article two years ago by Kay Warren. Rick Warren's wife. Rick Warren is the pastor of one of the largest, most successful Baptist churches in America, Saddleback Valley Church. He's an amazing guy. He has an amazing marriage. A wonderful wife, Kay. Kay writes an article uh, in her early 60s talking about her... Decades long, 30-year addiction to pornography Which started as a teenage girl And ran well into her 50s as the pastor's wife As the wife of a pastor of a megachurch And a deeply committed follower of Jesus And someone who loved God and battled with it her whole life So listen This is not a man thing or a woman thing This is a human thing Because our sexuality is so fundamental to us And the battle in our hearts is real So what do we do? Do we apply law never look at a woman never go online make women cover up from head to toe make men cover up from head to toe is that what we do well actually jesus i'm glad you asked that see jesus jesus said this right like um The answer is, uh, if 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 your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He's actually using a form of logical argument there called the reductio abd absurdum. So he shows the absurdity of an argument taken to its logical conclusion. And the conclusion is, if all that matters is your external behavior, just remove your eye. Just cut off your hand. But the point is, the point is, if, this, if the answer was just the behavior, you could still roll into heaven as a, as, a, as a blind, mutilated stump of a human being with a heart that was still utterly given over to lust. Like, like removing your hands not going to change your heart. Removing your eyes is not going to change your heart. I mean, it's great if you can do it, but you can't. It's not going to work. It, the, the problem is far deeper than our eyes and than our hands. Like the problems in here. It's in there for you and for me. It's about changing what we long for on the inside, what we desire, right, right? for all of us. And it's critical that as followers of Jesus, and again, I don't want to presume where you are, but let me just tell you what what the vision for this church is. And the church is that we are a, a community of wholehearted sexual character, where from the inside, our sexuality and our relating between the genders, women to men, is transformed and healed and redeemed at every age and stage in our community. The answer is not law. The answer is what we learn from, from the recovery movement, from Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it's, it's surrender. It's acknowledging we are helpless to change our hearts by ourselves. We just can't do it, right? But God can do it. And so then it's a day-by-day journey of surrender with God in a community of radical grace and complete honesty where we support each other in the battle and in the journey, in the fight to live kingdom of God-shaped lives from the inside out in the area of our sexuality. And now this may not be a massive struggle for you. You may be be someone who for a whole variety of reasons has won that battle largely in your life. But it's... it's still a battle we need to fight because we need to fight it for our kids, right? We need, to, we need to find a way to raise young women and young men in our church where against the absolute deluge of misinformation and twisted views of sexuality, we model a healthy God-given experience of sexuality and the way women and men relate to each other not not falling into law and legalism and but not giving not saying anything goes but saying gosh in the kingdom of god there's a better way and here's what it looks like and here's the practices and the paths to get there and it's about honesty and it's about grace and redemption and forgiveness and courage it's not about polishing the outside for an hour on a sunday or an hour on a Friday night at youth group, or an hour on Wednesday nights. It's about saying God is gonna get into our lives and he's gonna change us from the inside out. And, and that's important. It's not easy, but it's important. So then he goes, okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> uh, he says actual adultery is worse, but I'm gonna move on because um, I wanna talk about divorce. I don't want to. It's important because this leads and bleeds into our whole understanding of how marriage works. Right. So let me tell you where I'm going with this. Uh, In the kingdom of God, Jesus' recipe for a good marriage is this have your heart free of anger. Have your heart free of contempt. Have your heart free of lust. May your heart be full of reconciliation, of love and respect. And guess what happens? Divorce becomes an extraordinarily unlikely event. If you remove anger and contempt and lust from all our relationships, our marriages are going to flourish, right? And if, in their place, you put reconciliation and respect and love, there you have it. And that's important to know. We're not just we're not anti-divorce. We're just radically pro-flourishing in relationships. And Jesus tells us how to do it. Uh, let's have a think about this. Um, uh, in in Jesus' day, there were two. Schools of thought around divorce amongst the rabbis. Rabbi Shammai said that you uh, divorce could only happen for a very serious breach of sexual faithfulness. But Rabbi Hillel, uh, he had the view that um, you could you could divorce a man could divorce a woman, and it was almost always a woman uh, a man divorcing the woman for almost any reason. And uh, and this is how Jesus later on in Matthew's gospel talks about it, and it's worth framing these couple of verses in chapter 5 with these later verses in chapter 19. Uh, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's what Rabbi Hillel was saying. Jesus Jesus then unpacks uh, God's vision of marriage. Uh, That's a story for another day, um, and it's a a great story. And then he says this in verse 8... Moses permitted you in Deuteronomy 24 to divorce your wives. Why? Because your hearts were hard. How were men's hearts hard back in the day? Well, this is how it worked, right? Uh, You're a bloke in Israel, and uh, you marry a woman, and uh, you're married for a while, and maybe she's barren. Maybe she can't give you kids. Or maybe she gives you kids but she's just really annoying and she nags and she whinges and she's not a very good cook and then in the village someone you know another another family moves into the village and they've got a really like just a super attractive young uh, daughter and and you know her cooking is fantastic you go over for dinner after church and and the food that the daughter provides is just wonderful and the family has a long lineage of being very fertile. So you're like, she's, oh, man, I'm going to have lots of kids. She's great. And, and she's very compliant. She doesn't whinge and whine and criticize you. And, you know, she's just, she's everything your heart has ever wanted. But, you know, the problem is you've got this other old woman at home. So, oh, what am I going to do, right? Now, in a culture where divorce is not permissible, But where there's no active police force, where men have all the authority and all the power, what is a man gonna be tempted to do to his first wife? Can't divorce her. What's he gonna do to get out of the marriage? He's gonna kill her. And that's what happened. That's what happened then. And that's what happens today. Domestic violence leading to spousal murder is, in twisted ways and in cultures where divorce is not permissible, seen, is embraced as a path out of marriage. And so Jesus says, that's mean, that's hard-hearted. And divorce is given by God to protect women from that kind of terrible Terrible abuse, right? You can't just send a woman away. Now, you see, the rabbis thought that was great, though, because here's what they said. Well, that's awesome. Uh, as long as I give her a certificate of divorce, here's what it means. It means that she's not going to be committing adultery uh, because um, if she's got a certificate of divorce, then I've fulfilled the law because she might, marry, she might be able to marry again. That's the best possibility. Because if you're an unmarried, sing- if you're an unmarried older woman in a, a subsistence culture like Israel's at the time, you're likely going to starve to death. So your family might take you in, you might be married a second time as used goods, but at least legally available. Or if you've got a marriage certificate, at least you can, take, you can earn your living with the occupation of last resort for a woman, which is prostitution. So in the ancient world, prostitution was, that was the social safety net for single, for for women who'd been cast out. So you could protect a woman, she could could earn an honest living as a prostitute, because at least she had a divorce certificate, because guess what? If a man got caught having sex with a prostitute, and she didn't have a divorce certificate, what was the man guilty of? Adultery. So then he was in trouble. But if she had a divorce certificate, well, it wasn't adultery, was it? So he's okay. Jesus says, "No, no, you can't. It's that. That is a that is a terrible way to treat women. God, God has a God has a different plan, and He says, divorce is permissible only when there's been an irreparable breakdown. It's torn apart the very heart of the marriage. But but you, you're going to be there's going to be no lust in your heart to drive you into the arms of someone else. There's going to be no contempt." To, to erode the context of your relationship. There's going to be no anger to lead to violence. So, in fact, divorce is almost never going to happen, right? And yet there's no easy way out, Jesus says. And, and look what his disciples say. <laughs> they listen to him talk about this, and he says, they say, Oh, my goodness, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, if I can't get out of it that easily, I'd better not get into it in the first place. Wow. Wow. Hey guys, are you feeling a little uncomfortable? I mean, it's true for all of us, right? Like, oh man, what if I I get stuck in this? How many of you, uh, speaking to married folk, how many of you before you were married, like sometime in the week or the month before you actually went through the ceremony, did you have this little panicky dream of waking up the morning after going, oh, I married the wrong person? Don't stick your hand up. You know, our society's answer, and at one level I absolutely understand it, has been to make divorce easier and easier and easier. 1974, introduction of no-fault divorce. It's the Rabbi Hillel. Jesus' answer is to say, I want to change your heart. So that you have the character together that you can actually make it work. And that's really good. It's good for children. It's good for society. Because divorce changes us. You know that. I mean, if you've been through it, you know that it's, it's, it's not how we're meant to be. That's far better to live a life of reconciliation and respect and love, isn't it? But there are times, Jesus says, where to limit the damage of a broken relationship, you can end it to protect particularly the vulnerable in that relationship. That's what he says about marriage. Uh, I did this drawing uh, earlier. It's It's a very good drawing. You will notice my drawings have not... If you haven't been for a while, you'll notice my drawings have not got any better. What do we see here? Actually, I'll do it again, because actually that is terrible. It is genuinely terrible. I can't even read what's going on there. Okay, so let's do this again. Here we have... Uh, here we have the ground. And uh, you've got... Uh, let me just make sure I'm getting this This is drawing. You have a tree here growing. And uh, this tree has roots. Right? And if the roots of the tree are anger, contempt, and lust, what fruit is the tree going to bear? Murder, adultery, divorce. A whole world of relational pain and brokenness. Like that's what's going to happen, right? Now, and and in you just think that that's the inevitability, right? So you can you can put laws around to try and stop it happening, but that's where we're heading. Of course, there's another tree, right? And uh, and this tree has a different set of roots, right? And these are the roots of uh, reconciliation, of respect, of forgiveness. Uh, What's going to flow? What fruit is a tree that has those sorts of roots going to bear? It's going to bear the fruit of um, Like whole relationships It's going to bear the fruit of uh, A passionate marriage It's going to bear the fruit of love, isn't it? See, Is What matters To change the metaphor. It's so what's in your heart, right? It's in your heart. And Jesus says this. He's in the heart changing business, the heart transplant business. He wants to change what's in here so that what's out here is changed. And he wants us to move whoo, from here to here. And this is God's promise to us. From Ezekiel 36, the prophet said, hundreds of years before Jesus arrived, God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Over the years, uh, 20 years in pastoral ministry, I have spoken to so many couples in all stages of their marriage. On their way in, when it's going really well, when it's going really hard, and on the way out. Years ago, I was speaking to this beautiful couple. They came into my office. They said, I want to see you. They'd started coming to our church, just on the fringes. They said, I want to see you. Very, and he was a wealthy man. They're a beautiful couple, well-groomed, very attractive. Uh, he was successful. He traveled a lot for work. Uh, they had three beautiful little children... And uh, he was always working and he was always traveling. And there were many, many, many women in his path, on his travels, uh, who gave him lots of opportunities to sin. And he'd been unfaithful. And he'd been harsh to her. And she was dripping with anger and contempt. You can imagine, I mean, just so much pain, betrayal, on both sides. They tried counseling, they were trying it. And I came in and they said, Mark, can you help us? And I said, y- you need a new heart. You got to get rid of your heart of stone. You've got to ask God to give you a new heart of flesh or you'll love each other. And it's, and it's such a big job that only God can do it and, and you've got to stop where you are and you've got to cry out to him and each of you together have to say, give me a new heart, change me. And so they were desperate and we held hands around my little round table in my study and with tears streaming down their eyes, they said, Jesus, give us a new heart. Wasn't easy, but they're still together. He's been faithful. Her contempt is gone. And those three beautiful kids have a mom and dad that they can look up to and who are providing a secure foundation for them to flourish. God is in the heart changing business, in the life changing business. No matter how much you and I screw up, His grace is sufficient. I just want adultery is not the death knell of a marriage. It's hard, but it doesn't have to be the end. Sometimes this passage is taught as though that's the case. It's not. Where your heart is made new by Jesus and he drives out your anger, which is so hard, man. I, and, he, and he gets rid of your contempt and then he addresses your lust. And you replaces all of that with reconciliation, respect, and love for the other. You can make it work. We can build a church family where we help each other make our relationships work. And we hold each other accountable and we raise a generation of young people who can make marriages work. And don't think just because you're not married, you may be unmarried now, you've still got a responsibility to build a community where we live like this. Everyone does. That's so wonderful. That's hard. I think this is why the church matters so much. Who else in our city is going to going to not just give people a message of heart transformation that changes relationships, but then give them the spiritual tools and the community to actually empower them to do that. That's the church. That's us. (sighs) Let's pray. And then we'll take five minutes of questions. Lord God, uh, thank you for this teaching, and I pray that you will work in our hearts. It's tough in all kinds of ways, Lord. We need your help for any of us here whose hearts are hard, maybe just scarred, maybe just beaten up. Just, just breathe fresh life into our hearts. Give us your Holy Spirit afresh this morning so that we can uh, live out this kingdom-shaped life in our lives. And we ask this in your name. Amen. I'm going to just pause and take some questions. If you have, I mean, it ended on a bit of a somber note. Maybe John... Yeah, I was wondering, how about polygamy in those times? Wasn't it... Wasn't it a way to get rid of the old wife? What was, sorry? Polygamy. Polygamy. Ah. Yes, polygamy, well, uh, yes, that was one way to get rid of your old wife. You just, you keep adding new ones on. Um, And as the Bible says, it's generally oppressive for the women and doesn't end well. Um, So that was a strategy. And it's a strategy that's currently adopted as well, um, which is typically oppressive of women. And the Bible's view is, is monogamy is is the way God intends us to live and flourish yeah any other questions thoughts cool so clear, so compelling. I see that hand, Jan. Make Jono run. Just when you brought up about Kay Warren, um, I read some of her story. Um, just wanted to make a comment about past sexual abuse and how that can affect... Um, People's sexuality in adulthood. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah thanks, Jan. So um, it's another whole sermon to think about. Our, our sexuality, like all of our life, is a product of nature and nurture. It's a product of what we're born with and it's a product of the, the total of all the social interactions and relational interactions we have through the course of our lives. And some of those are extraordinarily damaging to us. And so we end up with our desires and our hearts being... I'm trying to think how to express this well, and it's hard. Sort of misshapen. so because of the damage and the hurt that was done to us and the lessons we learned as kids through abuse... How we then learn to express, or, or expressing sexuality and making relationships work in a healthy way becomes challenging, uh, for sure. Um, I, I think that's right. I think the teaching of Jesus still applies. It just needs to be applied, as always, with enormous grace. And to say, it's not a quick fix, typically. It's, uh, it can take a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Thanks. Yeah, I see another hand. John, Max, got a hand up down here. There we go. I see that hand. I feel like I'm at a Billy Graham. So if something's been done wrong to me or in a marriage or in a relationship, um, either in the past or um, ongoingly, I can forgive the person, but it doesn't wipe out the consequences of the sin. Yeah, so, how do you suggest you deal with the consequences of that sin? Oh. So, what, besides asking for a new heart every single day, what are some of hmm. the things that you can, or is the answer asking for a new heart every day? Yeah, I think the answer is asking for a new heart every day. <laughs> um. There are all sorts of extraordinary ways in which it can be hard to love and forgive somebody. Um, So if you, I don't know, you have an affair and you get pregnant and then your your husband discovers the affair and then your husband discovers that the child you are carrying is not his. Well, what do you do with that? I know husbands who have remained faithful to their wives, and raised the child as their own. And I suspect underneath that is a prayer every day for God to give them grace to forgive, because every, you know, I I don't know how you do that. I I go, Lord, I don't know that I could do that. I pray, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I pray that that I'd be the kind of man who could extend that sort of forgiveness, not that it's ever been remotely what I've had to do. (laughs) and you know you could think of all sorts of opportunities all all sorts of ways where that's happened Um, I mean I had one couple years ago where um, the wife discovered that the husband had been unfaithful because she ended up with a sexually transmitted infection that rendered her infertile because it was undiagnosed (laughs) like that's tough and what do you do with that? Well, you have a robust view of marriage don't you? Uh, this is another there's a you have what 's called a conjugal view of marriage, not a relational view. A conjugal view says that marriage is in the first instance not about our own romantic feelings or relationships it's about a covenant commitment of lifelong faithfulness being exclusive to the other person uh, and and it is of uh, immense significance because the foundation of a society, it's the foundation of a society and it's this relationship out of which children are born. So it's about covenant commitment to each other and you you believe that and then you pray for a new heart every day so that you can live that. Now, I feel like what I also need to say is um, in the context of domestic violence, uh, there is no need... there we. The teaching that sometimes has been given in the church that you should stay in an abusive or violent marriage because because your partner has not yet had an affair, the only grounds for divorce are adultery, and your partner might be beating you black and blue, but they haven't actually committed adultery, so you don't have a legal loophole to get out, seems to me to be utterly nuts and completely at odds with Jesus' teaching, completely at odds. I find it just nuts. The the, the 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 legalism of the Pharisees dressed up—it's bonkers. So so domestic protecting. When you're in a relationship with a person who is violent to you, uh, you have every good reason to get out, and the church needs to support you in that seeking of safety. For sure. Uh, was there another hand? No, I didn't see. Oh, Chris, did you have a question? There we go. Thanks, Chris. We're just going to make Jono run up and down. So. Hi, Mark. I, um, I just had a question. Um, what's the best daily spiritual practice that a husband and wife can um, adopt to better improve respect towards each other? So whilst you know, Cara and I do have respect for each other yeah. in a deep, loving manner, Life happens sometimes. Mm. And, uh, and we talked about it just literally two days ago. And to see it presented in, in the way that you presented was mm. really eye opening. And, and it doesn't look that hard anymore. <laughs> but, but I just, just wondered if you had a suggestion oh. as the best thing we could possibly do as yeah. a, as a, as a uh, couple or as family. As a couple. Gosh, that's such a good question. Uh, well, what you're doing, actually coming to church together, even if it's hard, uh, has been shown that couples who come, who actually make a practice of attending church together have uh, have better outcomes for their parenting and their marriage satisfaction than couples who don't. There's something about doing stuff together that matters. And in our, in our world, it's very easy not to. So, so big win for that. Um, I think uh, praying together, just talking to God together in... And, and John Wesley put it this way. Uh, the Christian life is... Um, Giving surrendering all that you know about yourself to all that you know about God. Our knowledge of our so I think that act of surrender and prayer and saying, I'm not you don't have to be perfect, you don't need complete perfect knowledge of who you are, and you absolutely don't need perfect knowledge of who God is, to actually just pray with each other, even over meals. So in our family, we're you know, just just thanking God before a meal. It sounds simple, but that just that little hold hands. Pray, thank God for the meal, thank God for the day. That builds respect. Uh, There's another thing you can do. There's a guy called John Gottman who has uh, written extensively on this. He has a, John Gottman writes a lot about how you build love and respect in a relationship. He's a Jewish guy, he and his wife. And he's got a, the Gottman Institute has like a weekly email that you can subscribe to with lots of tips like this. They've got an app you can get called the, I could show it on here. We love apps. You love apps? (laughs) You <laughs> have you got it no no it's, it sounds good though uh it's called the love deck let me see i think it's on my f- oh, card decks here we go waiting. Oh, it's downloading. I deleted it because, you know, I didn't need it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) We'd worked it all out. We're just perfect. We have no challenges anymore at all. Um, Just talk to Margot. She'll tell you how true that is. uh, anyway, it's downloading. It's called the uh, Love Deck. And it, if it's and so there's tools. And then having these conversations in church um, and being honest with each other is good. Yeah, okay. One last question. Kids are coming in. I see a question. Liz, Jono. Come on. I love this. We've got... Make him run. It's like AFL. He's the runner. Can I ask the kids what their advice is? On... Um, sorry, Mark. I just wanted to say, um, give hope for people who were in a marriage without a Christian. So my husband's not a Christian, but we went through a really, really hard time and separated. Um, and, you know, I prayed and God said to me, all you need to do is to trust me to change your heart and things will work out. And um, they did, we're still married. So, you know, there's often reason for divorce and I don't condemn anyone who's gone that road, but there is also hope for people married to an unbeliever. Yeah. Oh, I want you to end up with hope, right? So, if you want to know my um, the theoretical framework I, I adopt when I do marriage counselling and I think about this, is it's called solution-focused therapy or hope-focused therapy, because it's about hope. Like, God gives. There's there is almost no situation that is so bad that God can't redeem it and heal it and turn it around. Like, it's true, right? So, um, but it's those disciplines. It's hard. It's a day at a time. It's being in an honest community, all of that good stuff. Okay. Uh, thank you for your vulnerability. Thanks, Liz, for sharing that. That was beautiful. Thanks for those questions.